Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the first uh, 9.30 uh, Bible study for the year. Uh, the faithful beginnings, good morning, good morning. And others may join as we proceed. Uh, and we will be getting ahead of steam again as of next week. I know that everybody's going to be here next week because they'll all have remembered uh, then. But let's... Um, Turn our attention to the Lord, and um, just so you you know uh, what we're going to be doing this morning, um, we're going to carry on a series through the Confession, the 1689 Confession of Faith. Uh, last year we got to the end of Chapter 7, which is on God's covenant, and uh, we thought that was a useful place to, to finish. It was also providentially where we uh, came to by the end of the year. And we have uh, a real treat, I think, to kick the year off, uh, looking through the confession, uh, looking at uh, of Christ the mediator. So here we really look at the heart of our faith. We look at the, uh, the great mediator, Christ Jesus, God in the flesh, and a chapter that um, comes together beautifully and poetically to describe who he is as best as human language can uh, in all of his glory. Uh, and there are, it is quite a large chapter actually, it's sort of la- larger than, than most, um, ten, 10 paragraphs and many of them are, are big paragraphs, um, filled with amazing detail about Christ, his person and his work. And so we're going to relish going together through uh, this chapter together. Um, this morning we'll probably only touch on the first two paragraphs and maybe not uh, even in, complete, um, in completion. Uh, exhaustively. So we will read those at least and uh, hopefully get through as much as we we can. But let's, um, as we think about this important topic uh, of Christ Jesus, our Saviour and our Lord, uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Uh, Father in heaven, we do give you thanks that we have this opportunity and we have words of such clarity in this confession. We understand that uh, your Scriptures are the only infallible word, uh, but we do give you thanks for the faithful uh, work of men in the past who have thought about your scriptures deeply and have uh, put together summaries of the leading doctrines. Lord, as we look at this, uh, the head uh, and fountain of all, uh, the blessings of God, uh, Christ Jesus, our mediator, we pray that we would have particularly attentive minds and soft hearts to be able to come away from this time feeling worshipful and appreciative and joyful because we have a mediator, Christ Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, let's, um, uh, if you've got a copy of the confession, you would be welcome to turn there. Otherwise, I will read the first paragraph with you. Uh, and we will just make some comments on that together. Um, It says this, It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to uh, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and saviour of his church, the heir of all things, the judge and the judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed, 
and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, and glorified. Now you can just get a sense of how much doctrine and how much theology is being crammed into just these few words. Uh, the opening paragraph of this amazing chapter about Christ our mediator and it only picks up from there as we go into paragraph 2 which is to do largely with Jesus' uh, divine and human natures which we hopefully will touch on a little bit today. But I thought we would just uh, dwell together on this first um, paragraph together and remember that this um, event, uh, this historical moment where Christ was sent into the world did not start in Galilee or Nazareth or in Bethlehem. Good morning. Uh, it also um, didn't even start so much at creation when God first promised that the seed of the woman would come and crush the head of the snake. But it actually started in eternity in God himself in the eternal covenant of redemption between the Father and the Son. And you remember perhaps uh, last year we talked about how the, the scriptures really give us three major overriding covenants. There are many sub-covenants within the scriptures, covenant of David and Moses and, and Abraham and so on. But really if you're looking for the overall structure of, of everything uh, that scripture gives to us, there are three overriding covenants. There is the covenant of works whereby we are obligated to obey the law and have failed to do so first in Adam and then subsequently in our own lives. Uh, there is the covenant of grace, whereby God promises to redeem a people by his grace. And before all of this, there is the covenant of redemption, which is a covenant between father and son, and on the basis of which he redeems the world and redeems his people. And so um, I don't want to um, unpack that too much, but there is um, one verse I'd like somebody to read. Uh, Isaiah 42, verse 1, uh, which is the first um, scripture reference given to us uh, at the bottom in the footnotes of this paragraph. Um, the footnotes of the paragraph are uh, wonderful, is a wonderful resource and place to go in the scriptures uh, where you can get these doctrines laid out for you in, in the biblical narrative itself. Um, these footnotes are never exhaustive, or almost never exhaustive. They usually just give a, a sampling, uh, a, a kick-off point, enough to sort of prove the case, but there's plenty of other resources you could go to in the scripture um, to prove the, the points that are being made. But if someone wouldn't mind reading Isaiah 42 and verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Amen. So, a, a chosen, an elected, an appointed servant, Jesus Christ. Uh, one other verse would, will suffice, I think. Uh, the, the next one that they list is 1 Peter and chapter 1, uh, and verse 19 and 20. Would somebody be willing... Uh, to read that, 1 Peter 1, verse 19 and 20. Have you got it, Jun Hay? So, and there are many other verses that we could go to, you know, John, 
John's Gospel is littered with verses to do with the Father sending the Son, the Son having a relationship with the Father beforehand, um, the Father giving a people into the Son's uh, care for the sake of their salvation. That's part of the covenant of redemption, by the way. Um, so the, the, the doctrine of election has its basis in the covenant of redemption. Uh, and it's, it's in the basis of the fact that God has given a people to the Son in the covenant of redemption that the covenant of grace is established to save that people. Okay. But the, I think the real thorny bit of this um, first paragraph, uh, there, are, there is some glorious bits uh, to do with um, the, uh, the, the, the three titles of Christ Jesus, the prophet, the priest, and the king. But the, that is going to be mentioned again later on in the subsequent paragraph. So I'm not going to deal with that today. But the bit that... Um, uh, really I think stands out in this paragraph that people might think, oh this is a bit tricky, is this uh, idea that a particular people has been given to Christ for him to save. A particular people. Uh, that there is a limit, that there is a purpose, that there is an intent uh, in redemption. Um, it says, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed. And to be, by him, in time, redeemed, called, justified, and glorified. That is uh, a statement about uh, what we call limited atonement. Okay. And so what I would like to do, actually, is spend the first portion of our time, and it may take up our whole time, talking about limited atonement. Uh, limited atonement is, has gotten a lot of bad press. Uh, it's probably the doctrine that people find most offensive within Christianity. Maybe not most, but one of the ones that people find offensive. And uh, basically always, it is found to be offensive because it's misunderstood. Uh, and we need to understand exactly what is being said and what is not being said by this doctrine of limited atonement. So let me just frame it this way. Um, every Christian believes that the atonement or the redemptive work of Christ is in one sense limited and in another sense unlimited. Everyone agrees on this. Arminian, Calvinist, everybody. Everybody agrees that it is, unlim- that it is limited sorry, in its application. The atonement of Christ Jesus does not apply to everybody because certain people will be lost. Okay? Unless you're a universalist. If you're a universalist that thinks everybody's going to be saved Okay, you can, you can say that it's unlimited in that sense. But generally speaking, every Christian, every Bible-believing Christian, believes that there is a limit on the atonement in its application. Okay. Also, every Christian believes that the atonement is unlimited in its capacity. Okay. So it has the power to save limitlessly. It has the capacity... Uh, to save without limit. Okay. Um, so we need to understand that that is the, uh, uh, the agreed upon ground for the doctrine of a limited atonement, and that needs to be uh, well understood. Um, it is sufficient for all, okay, we all agree with that, but efficient for some, okay? Sufficient for all, unlimited. It is sufficient for all but efficient only for some. It will only be applied to some. Everybody agrees with that. Where the rub is, is exclusively to do with this one question. 
Okay, this one question. For whom did Christ come? For whom did Christ die? What was the purpose and design behind the coming of Christ to die on the cross? That's the question of limited atonement. Which is why the idea of limited is actually quite unhelpful. Because it's, it's not really to do with limiting or not limiting, it's to do with intention. It's to do with purpose, it's to do with design. What, what was the design in the mind of God for the coming of Christ Jesus? That's the question. Did he come with the intention of saving everybody, and he has just failed miserably to do what he wanted to do? Okay? That's essentially the Arminian position. And failed for many reasons, you know, God wants people to have... Uh, a free will of, of, of uh, a particular description and so on. But the reform view is that God does what he intends to do. He doesn't fail, ever. So what is the design behind the, uh, the atonement, the coming of Christ Jesus? It is to save a particular people. And that's what's being stated in this passage. Uh, Unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed. And to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. A great reference to Romans uh, 8 and verse 30 there. But that's the important thing to keep in mind. Okay, So we need to um, have that clear. This also doesn't mean that uh, we cannot offer the gospel to the whole world. We can. On what basis? Because it is sufficient for everybody... And because we've been commanded to tell it to everybody for those two reasons. Not because we think that if God had not really planned to save a person, they might still get in anyway. We don't think that. But we believe that the gospel is sufficient and is a genuine offer of salvation, even to those who God knows will reject it. Understand? So there's a sense in which Christ did still die for everybody. There's a sense. In the sense that the offer of salvation really goes to everybody through the cross. It's just that it wasn't designed to save people that it's not going to save. Right? Makes sense. It also is still fair to say that Christ died for everybody uh, in another sense, which is worth uh, thinking about. And that is that actually, the reason the world still exists, and the reason that common grace is extended to the world, is so that Christ can save his people. <laughs> so there's a sense in which everybody benefits from the cross, not, from, not salvifically, not to be justified from their sins, but there is a sense in which Christ did die for everybody in that more common grace sense, but not to redeem everybody. Any questions on that at this point? Are we clear? Clear enough. Okay. So let me then just lay out a few arguments for this uh, doctrine of limited atonement, or as it's also known, particular redemption, which is probably a better term, but we are stuck with limited atonement because of its historical uh, basis. So, uh, first, an argument for limited atonement or particular redemption uh, being from the nature of the atonement itself. The nature of the atonement itself. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. Uh, I hope you have. But when Christ died on the cross, a real payment was made. A real payment for sin was made. Christ was a real substitute for real sinners. And God's wrath was really turned away from sinners through the cross. Okay, That's the nature of the atonement. 
Now, if that is done for everybody, if that was done for everybody, uh, then it would be rather unjust for anybody to have wrath or unforgiveness or punishment or sin counted against them still. Right? That it would be actually quite unjust for God to send anybody to hell if a real payment and a real substitute has been provided for everybody. Does that make sense? The idea that um, either everybody will be saved, or everybody must be saved, or God must punish sin twice, once on the cross and then once in hell for a particular individual, which seems uh, illogical and, and unjust. Okay. So the nature of the atonement itself uh, points to and requires a, a limit on the intention of the saving work of Christ Jesus. It is sufficient to save everybody, but it is not intended to save everybody. In the mind of God, this sacrifice was not for everybody. Because if it was for everybody, then everybody would receive the benefits of it. And nobody would be still in their sins. We follow? Okay, another um, important proof is uh, text, uh, the texts that speak of the, uh, the limit on the atonement. And there's really a body of, of scriptures that speak of Christ's death being especially for his people. Um, that it, he came to die for his sheep. Um, so if we could just read a couple of these verses. Can I ask somebody to read John 10 and 15? Uh, and then John 10 and verse 26. And then verse 26 of the same chapter. That's right, okay. And there's a number of other verses in John. Would somebody mind just um, uh, reading for us maybe 17 verse 9? John 17 verse 9. And then if we could get somebody to also read uh, Ephesians 5 and 25. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. Mm, but they are yours, yeah. Uh, Ephesians 5 and 25, does somebody have? Husbands, yes. husbands yeah. love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, yeah, yeah. See, we, that's, a, that's a great verse on limited atonement, and we'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, we, of course, take it as a, as a wonderful verse about marriage, and it is, but there's a, ver there's, a, there's a meaning in there that's important that we'll get to in just a moment. So Jesus is said to have died for his people, and the, the assumption seems to be that he, he died intentionally for them, that he died specifically for them, and that while his death may be sufficient for all, that there is a design and a purpose in his death for the sheep, for his people, for a specific group of people. And we are to take great comfort and encouragement from that fact that it is actually, it does have this exclusive force to it. Uh, Romans 8 and Romans 5 actually use the death of Christ Jesus as the ground for our assurance of salvation. Um, now, that doesn't really work if he died for everybody, right? Um, if he died for everybody, then there's a good portion of people who he died for don't have a basis for assurance, right? 
So if the death of Christ for us is the basis of our assurance, then the death of Christ can't be for everybody, because not everybody should be assured of their salvation. Does that follow? Okay. Okay, uh, another uh, important set of scriptures that really do prove, I think, the limited atonement theology is what the scriptures say happens at the death of Christ to believers. What happens to a believer when Christ dies on the cross is very, very significant. So would someone mind reading for us 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 14? For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Okay. One has died for all, therefore all have died. Now, let me ask you this question. When did your old nature die? Let me ask you that. If you're a Christian, when did the old nature, the sinful nature, die and give way to the new nature? This is a trick question, but I would love for you to fall into my trap, please. Would someone be willing? When Christ died. Yeah, that's right. That's, the, that's what this answer is actually. That's what this text is saying. That's when it actually happened. In a, in a sense, in a sense. There is another sense in which it happens in time when you are called, right? That's clearly the case. But there is another sense in which when it really happened, that is when it became certain, when it became purchased, when it became a sure thing, was when Christ died, okay? And it is, that only works if there is a real union between Christians and Christ at his death. That there is a real, in the mind of God, there is a union between Christ and his people such that when Christ died, he purchased our spiritual death. When Christ rose from the dead, he, he paved the way for our spiritual regeneration. Does that make sense? That's what, that's, that seems to be the only way to take Paul's words. We are, we've been convinced of this, that one died for all and therefore all died. Okay. Any questions so far? The, um, the, the question that, of course, uh, might come to mind and that perhaps should come to mind is, well, what do we do with uh, verses that seem to be more universal in their application of Christ's work on the cross. And this is um, a reasonable question that has been raised. Uh, probably the most famous text that's been raised in opposition to limited atonement would be uh, John chapter 2 and verse 2. Uh, and if someone gets there before me, they can read that. No, I've beaten you. Okay. Uh, verse 1 says this my little children I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin but if anybody does sin we have an advocate with the father Christ Jesus the righteous he is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours but also for the sins of the whole world okay wow Um, everybody's sins have been propitiated propitiation being that, that, that very technical word that says Wrath has been turned away. Wrath has been satisfied. 
Christ is no longer needing to bring about wrath and punishment upon sinners. That's what the word propitiation means. Okay? And uh, John is saying quite boldly that he is the propitiation, the one who takes away wrath, not only for our sins, but also he is the one who takes away wrath for the sins of the whole world. So it does seem at least first glance, at least at first glance, to be a difficult verse to square with this uh, doctrine. And I would say this, if this is the only verse in the whole Bible that tells us about the atonement, I think we'd all have to be universal atonementists. We'd all have to be universalists in that sense. Um, This verse, on its own, without context or other verses to help us interpret it, does seem to say universal atonement. But given what we've been saying, given the nature of the atonement, given these other verses that seem to point to particular redemption, given the nature of election and the nature of the covenant of redemption, and given the nature of what Christ's death does in the believer, causing his own spiritual death, the death of the old man, given all of these things, it is worth asking the question, could John mean something else when he says this? Could he not actually be saying Jesus is the propitiation for every individual in the whole world? Is it possible that he's not saying that? Is there another way in which we could read that he is the propitiation of the whole world? And I think we can say yes. There is another way we could read that. Uh, If you think about how um, localised and how ethnic the the gospel was um, up until the coming of the book of Acts, essentially... Um, it does seem quite appropriate for John to make some relatively universal statements that actually it's not just for us, it's not just for the believers now, it's not just for the Jews, but it's for the whole world. This gospel must go to the whole world. This propitiation is for, for people of every tribe, nation and tongue. So it could be taken in that sense. And I think that would be a very reasonable way to take it. And really, in my mind, the only way to square it with the, uh, the other verses that um, are being spoken of because we need to remember um, there is this unique feature about the Bible, it's actually not that unique um, where it uses sometimes quite universal language to talk about something that's not universal we just read a verse didn't we Uh, Christ has died for all, therefore all died, now it says all, but really it doesn't mean every individual in the whole world I think we we can say that with confidence that not every individual in the whole world has their spiritual death wrapped up with the, with the death of Christ Jesus. Because not every individual in the whole world is going to experience a, a spiritual death of the old self, of the sinful nature, and a, renew, and a renewal in Christ. Right? So it's saying Christ died for all, therefore all died. Both of those alls are talking about Christians. Christ died for all Christians, therefore all Christians died. That's clearly what it means. But there's a few other verses uh, that speak universally which are not intended to be universal. Can I ask somebody to read Colossians 1 and verse 6? Colossians 1 and verse 6, if that's okay. So um, Paul is saying the gospel is bearing fruit in the whole world. Well, 
I mean, the gospel hadn't come to New Zealand yet. The gospel hadn't come to Australia yet or America yet or anything like that. In fact, the gospel hadn't come to the vast majority of the immediate world around Paul when he wrote that. Uh, many people were not Christians. But the gospel was bearing fruit in the whole world. Okay. So it's, it's a universal language, but it doesn't mean every individual, every individual place and so on. We understand. Okay. So the, the Bible does regularly use this kind of language, and the context must be the, the key. Um, so it is entirely appropriate to understand John 1, uh, 1 John chapter 2 and verse 2 as being perhaps more than just speaking about every individual, but actually the whole world in a different sense. Make sense? Any questions? Okay. Now, while it's important to understand the doctrine rightly, it is also uh, maybe more important to understand just how glorious this doctrine is. Okay? Um, so we don't just want to defend it biblically, but we want to actually delve in and say, this is such a good thing that this has happened. You know, I think we, we can have that tendency with different doctrines. I think we especially have that tendency when it comes to uh, complicated doctrines. We spend the whole time just trying to define it and defend it and not glory in it and celebrate it. I've just been reading um, books on doctrine of God and um, this theme is just coming up again and again. We need to get clarity, we need to be accurate, we need to be precise, we need to explain things clearly. But actually at the end of the day what we need to do is celebrate the God that we worship. Understand him rightly but celebrate him profoundly because that is what he is. We need to do the same with every doctrine. It's not enough to just defend the resurrection of Jesus Christ from a historical perspective. You need to glory in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its application for us. It's not enough to just defend the doctrine of the atonement or the doctrine of limited atonement and particular redemption. We need to celebrate and recognize the glory in it. So where is the glory to be found in limited atonement? Well, I think it's in this. That Christ came for you. Christ didn't come for an undefined, unspecified, impersonal corporate body of known as the church that you could possibly be part of or maybe not. He died for you. That you were a name mentioned in eternity when a covenant was being made between the Father and the Son. Isn't that the most glorious thought that a Christian could have? That when the covenant of redemption was being made, <coughs> your name was there. Your name was in the book of life. This is the people Christ is going to come and save. Isn't that amazing? If you could imagine like a, uh, an illustration of like a, an, an ancient warrior hero who slays the dragon that's uh, attacking a town. So there's a town that's being uh, burned and attacked by this, this fire-breathing dragon and this champion hears about it and he comes and he slays the dragon. Okay. Oh, that's a wonderful story. It's a glorious story. But let me tell you an even more glorious story. You've got a, a champion who hears that a dragon is attacking a town. And that stirs him to a certain degree. But then he hears that his wife, his beloved, is in that town. That his, his chosen one, his bride, the one he loves, is now under threat, is now under attack from this fire-breathing dragon. And that stirs him all the more. And he rushes in and he slays the dragon, not so much to save the town, but because his wife is there. Because his bride is there. 
Now that's getting, I think, to the sense, to, to the heart of the glory of limited atonement. That it's not for some undefined and unknown body of people. It is for a bride. It is for a beloved. It is for a specific one that Christ Jesus has come to die. And in fact, that is exactly what Scripture says. In the text we looked at a minute ago, Ephesians 5 and verse 25. If someone wouldn't mind just reading that one more time for us. We know it well, but let's read it again to just have it in our minds. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now that verse actually doesn't really work unless you believe in limited atonement. Right? That verse doesn't really work if Christ died for everybody. If Christ died for all then there is no exclusivity in his husbandly love. He died for all women. (laughs) He died for all brides. He died for all people. And the husbandly example that Christ is giving to husbands is nothing other than you should love your bride, but you should also love all women the same. And you should actually all love, love all men the same as well. Because in the same way that Christ died for the bride, he died for everyone. He died for all unbelievers, women, men, everybody. But it does make sense if you understand that Christ had a particular bride that he was dying for, that he was sacrificing for. And the husbandly um, example that that gives to husbands is to do the same. To die for not everybody, but to die for their bride. Does that make sense? So you can see that there is glory in this passage. There's glory in this doctrine. And really, there's so much more to say about the intentionality of Christ coming and dying for his people and how that should be applied pastorally to ourselves. Exclusivity is a beautiful thing. Even though it does have its sharp edges. Okay, what if you're not part of the bride? Well, that is a tremendous tragedy. Tremendous tragedy. But there is a glory in this doctrine as well, that Christ did die for the bride. That bride was written down in heaven. It was exchanged in the great um, exchange of the covenant of redemption. And Christ came and lived and died and rose again and reigns for his bride. Any questions or thoughts? Amen. Well, I'm wondering if it might be worth stopping uh, before we talk about the next paragraph. Um, I will just read that paragraph to you. Maybe we'll just do that with our last um, few minutes. Um, Where we talk about the person, the identity of Christ Jesus. Uh, It says this, The Son of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him, who made the world, who upholdeth and governeth all things he made, he hath made, did, when the fullness of time was, take, uh, was come, take unto him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities thereof, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, 
the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her. And so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures. So that two whole, perfect and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person without conversion, composition or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and men. Jesus Christ. Isn't that glorious? So we will... Uh, read that again because it's got a lot in there and we'll unpack that somewhat uh, next Lord's Day morning. Lord willing, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we do give you praise because of the great work that you started in the covenant of redemption with your son and the agreement that was made to purchase a people for yourself, a bride that would be saved in time, saved uh, from our sins, and brought to glory by your grace. Lord, we thank you for this great mystery and this great um, gift of grace. Lord, may it stir our hearts to long for you and love you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.